I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to our broadcast of the Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. My name is Steve Lassard. I'm a producer here at Sounds True, and I'll be your host this evening. Tonight, Tara Brock is broadcasting live from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, while I and the Sounds True team are all here in our Boulder studios. Without further ado, welcome, Tara. Hey, thanks, Steve. And welcome, friends. Oh my gosh, I really, I've been looking forward to being with you. It's strange, this uh, cyberspace relating, but um, I really valued the questions uh, that you sent out. I thought they were fantastic, and I'm really excited uh, to spend some time with you on this, uh, just really exploring empathy and compassion. So tonight, I'll I'll be speaking and I will weave in some of the questions and responses, um, but most of what I would have said are really um, relating to your questions anyway. Um, and then we'll do, we'll do a bit of practice together. Um, I thought I'd share, since Steve mentioned I was in Cape Cod, I'm, uh, I've got my last month and a half before I'm due to deliver this book on rain. And so I'm here on a kind of writer's retreat and near the ocean. I, wanna, I love to you know just write, 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 and then go for a swim. But uh, my favorite beaches have been closed because of some of you might have heard it was a shark attack in Truro and um, there's so many sightings. There's just, uh, you know, it's huge. So anyway, I've been deprived of one of my favorite activities. I can't swim on the ocean side. And I've been really reflecting on how do I regard these primitive eating machines with compassion, you know, and, and the cartoon that most helps, some of you might remember are these two sharks swimming and one saying to the other, these two great white sharks, one saying to the other, the pressure to be Great is too much. I would much rather be known as the just okay white shark. <laughs> so I've been remembering that one. It's a bit of a stretch, but the deep truth that we will explore together more is that all living beings have a shared vulnerability and we're part of this web of life. We're all part of the same larger belonging. So how do we remember and open our hearts in an all-inclusive way? Let's begin together with uh, some moments of meditation, if you will. And uh, wherever you are, let this be a time of pausing. You might close your eyes and take a few full breaths, collect your attention. Sense whatever helps you to arrive in presence right now. Feeling the aliveness in your body, aware of the sounds around you, feeling your body sitting here and breathing. Feeling your heart, whatever the state of your heart is right now, being aware of that. I'd like to invite you to sense a recent time when you felt a genuine sense of compassion Somebody was having a hard time, and your heart felt tender towards them. So take some moments, recent or not so recent, but to recall this kind of a situation. 
when you bring the situation to mind, remind yourself of what it's like, the, the felt sense of feeling compassion. And of course, if you're finding this is difficult, just sense what might block compassion for you and sense that with kindness, with interest. So a situation when you felt compassion for another being, you felt sense of that, what the compassion feels like. And the sense of your own being when you're caring and kind. What, who are you? What's it like to, to sense your own beingness when your heart's tender? What happens to your sense of self? And you might widen the attention to sense all of us here in time and out of time, attuning to this kind of heart space and our shared intention to awaken our hearts, just to feel that. Thank you. I often think of the Dalai Lama talking about bodhicitta, the awakened heart, and he says that he can't always manifest it, but he cares about caring, that it matters to him. And, and I love that because we, we know we can't, like on command, feel an outpouring of compassion. And yet there's something in us that cares about it. And how come? <laughs> You know, and, and the way I think about it, and I, I find more and more when I teach, I use this, the frame of our evolutionary unfolding, and that compassion is an expression of our evolutionary potential, that just the way a, a flower wants to bloom, we want to uh, awaken compassion. And it's, I always am interested in evolutionary psychology that describes the success of our species more than due to the size of our brain and cognitive capacities and tool making. It's the capacity to collaborate flexibly in large numbers. That's, our, that's really what has given us the edge. And our trajectory is to be able to collaborate in wider and wider circles. Um, this is really the hope the sense of belonging to larger and larger, larger circles of being. So I wanted to remind you of a story that I shared uh, at one point, and I think it's something you may decide you want to share when you're teaching about compassion. Uh, it's a story of Jarvis Masters, who's an inmate in San Quentin and a Buddhist teacher and uh, student. And he was out in the yard when another inmate uh, lifted a stone to throw it at a seagull. And he stopped him. And he stopped him by saying, that bird has my wings. That bird has my wings. And the guy kind of put down the stone, kind of shook his head. He just, you know, that was it. But through the next following days, weeks, different, different other inmates would come up to Jarvis and say, well, what do you mean by that? And... It's an experience that we kind of intuit, that really all beings share the same urge to live fully, to be happy, to be free. So compassion arises out of this sense of that bird has my wings, that the sense of belonging. And it correlates in the brain to an integrated brain state and the activation of part of the frontal cortex where there's this neural net having to do with relationship. And it serves caretaking and collaboration. And compassion is blocked when we're dominated by more primitive perceptions of separation, when we're caught up in the limbic activity of fight, flight, freeze. 
So here's the deal when we're teaching, which is every one of us gets triggered and gets caught up in that kind of limbic reactivity. In other words, every one of us has compassion blocked by limbic reactivity, um, often more so if there's been generational trauma or trauma this lifetime. Um, and also we get blocked as we get triggered by pervasive societal conditioning that creates an other, a hierarchy of othering. And we're going to talk about this. Finally, each one of us gets blocked so we got, get caught in our daily habits of being what I now call worrier pose. <laughs> Some of you know it from yoga. It's, it's a different version. Worrier pose. We get caught in it. So in those moments, we're not open to uh, the wisdom of compassion. Now, when I teach and this is what we're, this is where all the questions, your wonderful questions, I really love them, came from is how to address the challenges that we all experience to feeling compassion. And the attitude that I think is most useful as a kind of overall way to hold things is from that beautiful Rumi quote, which is our task is not to seek for love but merely to seek and find all the barriers within ourselves we've built against it. Now, as I might have shared with you, um, that's the quote that I was familiar with for many years, not to seek for love, but find the barriers we've built against it. And a Sufi scholar told me that there's another piece to that quote, which is, and embrace them. So we not only find our barriers to compassion, but we embrace them. And that is critical. And the, the habit is to feel ourselves in some way cut off from being compassionate or loving and add on that second arrow of blame. So it's embrace them. So we're going to look at the barriers that come up. And the two main categories, as I mentioned, will be the barriers that come up when we are triggered by others. Uh, when others act in a way that make it very hard to be compassionate towards them. And we'll also look at the barriers that come up that are socially conditioned to create a sense of difference and hierarchy. And I'd like to offer a frame of understanding which addresses the difference between empathy and compassion, which again, a number of you asked about. And I wanted to share that for me, this is a relatively recent distinction that I've come to understand. And I found it super valuable, like it's really made a difference uh, in my own way of uh, filtering things. So um, and this uh, difference between empathy and compassion addresses uh, what a number of you wrote about to do with burnout. So empathy is our capacity to feel the emotions of others and or to take the perspective of others. Okay, that's empathy. Compassion begins with that. We have those capacities, but it adds two interrelated elements that aren't necessarily in empathy. And what, what we might call the two wings of awareness is what it really adds. Compassion's not only being able to feel the feelings of others, but it has the crucial element one of mindfulness so that when we contact another's pain, we're in that resonance field, we're not merged with or identified with the pain, nor do we have to dissociate. In other words, the limbic experience of the pain and wanting to not have pain, doesn't, that doesn't take over. So if there's mindfulness with our empathy, then that allows a real caring to emerge and a motivation to relieve suffering. And that's the second component. So there's empathy, being able to take the perspective or feel the feelings. And then there's compassion when that happens with mindfulness and it blossoms into a very pure kind of caring. Now you might say, yeah, but em empathetic people are caring. But unless there's mindfulness, the caring has the quality of grasping, uh, trying to get rid of the unpleasantness of the suffering, or some degree of dissociation. Because unless there's mindfulness, we can't tolerate so well another person's pain. 
So if we become too empathetically distressed, uh, we don't actually have the cognitive or emotional resources to help them or be with them in a comforting way. So this distinction really helped me understand why compassion allows for resilience and uh, a genuine connectedness and wise action. And it's validated by science. So there's been experiments, and this is all in the last few years. Uh, neuroscientists have been able to detect clear differences in how the two states are processed in the brain. So you see the empathy and it activates these areas that are linked to emotion, self-awareness, and pain, whereas compassion stimulates areas in the brain that are associated with care and nurturing, and also those that are connected to learning, decision-making, and the brain's reward system. So by example, when we're fully compassionate, uh, there's, a stim there's the secretion of oxytocin, which, as you know, is the bonding hormone. It, feel it makes us feel good. It's released during uh, lovemaking, nursing a baby. So the upshot, with compassion, we feel a sense of warmth and connection. There's, and these positive feelings, they mobilize our energy, so we're more capable of helping. Now, just to bring this, you know, anchor this in a personal way, I thought I'd share with you what I realized about my relationship with my mom, who uh, I, I grew up at, in my early years, she was an active alcoholic. And um, since being really, really young, she told me this, I was super empathetic, you know, with I was very, very attuned to her. So I acutely felt her depression and anxiety, and I tried to fix it. And then as I got older, going towards teen times, I also dissociated from all that, and I judged her a lot as weak, and I didn't want to be like her. And then over the years that followed, we both changed. She did as much as I did. Um, I remember, um, not, this is not so long ago, one of the most painful parts of losing my dad was the depths of my mom's pain. I remember one day she was sitting there and she said, I just can't imagine living into the future without him. And her, her grief was so visible and raw that I initially felt this squeeze, like this young part of me that just wanted to take it away and make her all better and fix her. And then there was this inner voice that just said, be present with her, just love her. And I could feel in my body the shift from empathy to that more open space and tenderness of compassion. So this is a, I hope you find that distinction helpful. Uh, many of you probably know it, but for those that don't, um, and going deeper into it. So here we have, you know, what is full-blown mature compassion? And there are three elements that are often described with it. And we see uh, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, I think, um, outlined it really beautifully, that mature compassion has mindfulness, kindness, and what they call common humanity. I shift that a little bit. I th to me, it, I, I like the, the language of mindfulness, kindness, and wisdom. And the reason is common humanity has to do with seeing the truth of our connectedness. But I, I like to avoid the, the word common humanity because I think it's critical as we teach about compassion that it's all beings are part of us, not just humans. Uh, even though you might say humanity has to do with more than just humans, that all beings suffer. So all beings are being included in our compassion and the wisdom sees the interconnectedness of all of life. Okay, so we're going to begin to look at the barriers, uh, the barriers to compassion and how do we see them, embrace them, move beyond them. And one question, uh, you know, said it quite beautifully, how to arouse compassion for difficult people, the political leaders, those who are arrogant, spoiled, and wealthy, um, those who have caused injury to others, to ourselves, to children, those who act in ways that bring up aversion, anger, the coworker who brings up jealousy. So this is the domain. Um, when we're teaching, people will bring to us the difficult person. And with each difficult person, 
what's going on is that their limbic system, I say there, our limbic system gets triggered. We feel threatened. And the other becomes what we've described as an unreal other. In other words, we're no longer to see with the eyes of wisdom that they're part of us, that we have the same shared vulnerability. Um, we're shut down in terms of that, that kindness and in terms of, you know, really a mindful presence. So the inquiry then is how do we move from the limbic dominance to compassion with a difficult other? And I think one of the most useful ways in teaching that we can describe it, um, it's as the, there's a, a saying that the heart of Buddhism is compassion and the heart of compassion is compassion for ourselves. is to always come back to self-compassion first. So whatever our reactivity is to the difficult person, first bring compassion to that place of reactivity. Because if we bypass that, we won't have an authentic compassion for the other. So it begins caring for what's inside us and then extending it. And when we extend it, then we begin to look through the eyes of wisdom to see, well, what do you need and where does it hurt? You might remember that phrase from civil rights activists, Ruby Sales, where does it hurt? So I thought I'd share with you two examples of working uh, with difficult people and uh, where we're, you know, widening the circles, but first bringing self-compassion inward and then extending it. And the first one's a personal story um, that's come to mind, and I am including it also in this upcoming book, um, where years ago I was experiencing this growing tension with a man who was co-serving with me on a nonprofit board. Um, and he was a wealthy guy and donated a lot, very generous also, very white, alpha, um, and his style, um, this is why he was a difficult person. He was, I wasn't the only person who found him, so, but I remember really having a hard time working with it. It's that he would just cut people off when they were talking, and he often dominated the conversations and pushed his agendas. So, so I found him arrogant and disrespectful. And at one meeting, he interrupted a new member who had joined the board. He dismissed what something she was saying is half-baked or something like that. And I just remember watching her flush and withdraw and him carrying on kind of oblivious. Uh, and I could feel myself seething. I was seething inside. So before the meeting closed, I, I sharply confronted him for his lack of respect and care. And he became defensive and he left abruptly and others sat silently. And it was not a good ending to a meeting. And I was, I was not skillful at all. So I go home and I'm processing. And the first thing I had to do is, of course, forgive myself uh, for, you know, really, you know, lashing out with my own anger. And, but then what became critical was that I opened to that reactivity. So I, okay, anger's here. Um, as some of you know, sometimes I say forgiven, forgiven to anger because there's such a habit of thinking it shouldn't be here. You know, so okay, anger. And underneath that anger was this fear of him causing harm to others as he had, and also to my own experience of feeling disrespected by him. So as you know, these were the. This is like a feeling I was trapped in this unpleasant working experience because I, I felt obliged to be on this board and I was powerless. And so I was opening to all of that with self compassion. And when I really did that, then I was in a more mindful, kind, and wise place. I was able to see him more from that space of of awakeness. And I could see under his arrogance and judgment, if I asked that question, well, really, what do you need? You know, how come you're trying to control and be right all the time? What do you really need? And I could sense his insecurity, and in some way he needed to be reassured, to be valued. And we did talk a few days later, and, and I began, and I honored his, his dedication, his generosity, and the value he brought, and I could sense him softening, and he was able to hear a bit more about 
what it would be like for that new person to be told her idea was half-baked. And, um, and I share this because I've had many rounds of similar things, but this one was very distinctive that I had to really stay and bring compassion to my own anger in order, and what was under it, in order to be able to see from a place that could, could just see past his mask and then be able to feel more tender. I've called this, uh, some of you will remember, making the U-turn, that before you try to bring compassion to somebody else, you bring the attention back here to your own reactivity and barrier. And it's a very, that's a term I think you'll find useful in teaching, because so quickly we're trying to forgive the other person or be compassionate towards the other person. First, the self-compassion, says Rumi said, embrace the barriers. And then from that, that wider lens of compassion, we can view the other. And that includes the political leader. That includes those who've caused injury, who've caused you injury, who are hard to relate to. It includes your own children when it's difficult. Many people say, well, okay, so I'm beginning to sense the other person as vulnerable and so on, but, but how do I really see it? And I find it helps sometimes to imagine the person as a child, to imagine them hurting, or to imagine them, what they're like when they're comforted, like if they're really comforted or appreciated or loved. Because by imagining, you can see what's not most superficially there, but is the soft underbelly. I want to also mention in teaching that many parents that we work with, and many parents in general more, let me say, are secretly ashamed of their reactions to their children. Um, I know that of myself, that, you know, I couldn't believe I was as controlling or angry or whatever, or preoccupied or whatever. And the sense it's not okay to feel that way. Um, so one of the things that it feels really important in um, reaffirming is that on this path to compassion, all reactions are legitimate. In other words, we have to include whatever the reaction is in our heart with self-compassion or we will not open our hearts to others. And that includes jealousy and hatred and so on because they don't pop out of nowhere. They're, they have causes and conditions. I'm thinking right now of one man uh, who is a, a stepfather, actually, and he really disliked his stepson, who was eight years old and had tantrums and was rude and disrespectful, not only to him, but his mother. And his mother didn't have good boundaries. And so this man confessed to me that sometimes he hated this boy. And that was really embarrassing to him. Very hard to admit. So we practiced that U-turn. And under that, that hatred, there was this fear that this boy was going to ruin his life, ruin his new marriage, and that he was powerless. And he, and he felt this grief at the loss of feeling well-being in his own home. And when, when he could sense all that, he could be kind towards that part of him that felt hatred. And he could begin to actually communicate with his wife and say the thing he had been so ashamed to say. And then she was able to admit, I don't like him either a lot of the time. And then together they were able to find that space of tenderness that could actually look more closely at this young boy and see his agitation, his confusion, how cut off and lonely he was. It all took time, but I'm sharing this because there is such a powerful teaching when you can get people to do that U-turn and really, really take the time bringing compassion to where the reaction is in them first. I've been speaking a lot now, and maybe we'll pause and just practice this a little. Let's practice ourselves um, bringing compassion to a difficult person. You can't do it too often. <laughs> so you might let this be a pause. 
take some moments again to invite yourself right here. Feel your breath and feel your heart. You might bring to mind somebody who you'd like to feel more compassion towards, but who's difficult for you. Could be somebody at work, somebody in your extended family or close in. Could be somebody you don't know, but that really triggers you politically, political figure. When the person, when you have the person, you brought them to mind, uh, take a moment to sense what the barrier is, what reaction comes up that blocks compassion. Let yourself sense the, the judgment, the aversion, the anger. Making that U-turn. Say yes to what comes up. You're not saying, yes, this thought is right. You're just saying, yes, this, is, this belongs in this moment. This is the feeling, experience that's here and gently begin to investigate, sense really what's going on. What most wants your attention about this? What are you afraid of? Where's the hurt or vulnerability inside you about this? As you sense where the fear or vulnerability is, take some moments to actively offer kindness, some expression of kindness, whatever you think this place in you most needs right now. might be a quality of forgiveness, care, company, understanding, tenderness. And then from your own most compassionate heart, allowing yourself to look through that lens of care, of wisdom, at the other person. And see if you can sense the, the vulnerability that's there. the child inside that really didn't get the qualities of love or understanding. The insecurity. And 
It's that question, where does it hurt? Or what do you need? Sensing that place in you that really does wish the hurting place in them well. That wisdom in you that knows that bird has my wings. This mutual vulnerability that we all share. And as you're ready, take a few full breaths and open your eyes if you'd like, or you can continue uh, in a more meditative way if you'd like listening. One of the things that uh, when we're teaching, we're, we all encounter is uh, people will talk about, you know, what's going on, the difficult people, what they're being triggered by. But often there's a belief that they're holding. Uh, and it's really a misunderstanding that is fueling their um, incapacity to feel compassion. And so I'd like to name a few of them. And, and each one that I'm naming uh, were in some of your questions. So again, um, I want to honor that. Uh, one of the misunderstandings that I hear a lot is if I'm compassionate to someone, I won't tend to my own needs. I'll become a doormat. I'll be taken advantage of. Um, and so just to reconnect again with our frame that compassion, mature compassion means mindful, caring, and wise. And it's a quality of heart mind that includes ourselves and others both. So it feels really important to keep putting that back out there, ourselves and others. Now, sometimes there's a, an apparent clashing of needs. And so then we have to seek the wisest way to serve mutual well-being. And I have, I think that the path to wise resolution is to be able to understand our own and each other's needs. And it takes communication. Now, sometimes two people will have different needs and it's not always possible for them to talk about it. So it's important when you're teaching to say that even if you're just seeking to understand your own and another person's needs and they're not in, in the game with you, it still moves you and them towards healing. Um, it still helps to both arouse self-compassion for your own unmet needs and compassion towards the other. Now, sometimes when there's conflicting emotional needs, one, like, for instance, I'm going to give you some examples that I, I find useful. One person will want more space. The other wants more contact. One person feels more emotional or physical need for attention. Another person wants, um, you know, more time uh, for self-care and so on. And um, just in, as an example, a man and a woman, uh, she had a lot of financial insecurity and because as a child, her parents really struggled. There never was enough. So there was a lot of pressure on him to keep this secure job and not follow really his passions, which turned out to be he wanted to do mindfulness-based addiction counseling with youth, which wasn't going to pay much money. So for a handful of years, he he continued in his uh, current job, and but he got resentful. So they talked. So this was a clash of needs. You know, she wanted a, the secure job. He wanted to follow his heart. And he, they both got in touch with each other's needs in a, in a compassionate way. And they made an agreement. He'd continue some consulting, but he went ahead and, you know, started his, uh, you know, addiction counseling also, but they regularly checked in and she, so she could feel him with her still attending to, you know, the fact of her feeling unsure and so on. So it wasn't 
a, it's not conflict, it's conflicting needs. When, and I'll give you a silly example. Three guys stranded on a desert island find a magic lantern containing a genie. And Jeannie's going to grant each one of them a wish. So the first guy wishes he's off the island and back home. The second guy wishes the same. The third guy says, I'm lonely. I wish my friends were back here. That little story exemplifies we're not in conflict. It's conflicting needs. And if we can teach about that, that if you're feeling like there's a conflict, know that the other person has an unmet need then our conversations change. Now, another one of the misunderstandings is if I'm compassionate, the other person won't change. Uh, they'll have no motivation. They'll get away with whatever's going on. And um, some of you might know the term idiot compassion. Now, idiot compassion, I think this is from the Tibetan tradition. What it really means is the kind of compassion that's immature where we're enabling others, where we're not having you know, decent boundaries, we're not giving people feedback the way we need to. So the given is we're in a relational field, we have to communicate our wants and needs, we need those boundaries. But mature compassion, when it's really mature, um, actually is the fuel for change. It's an illusion to think that meaningful change will come uh, when we use our anger, our aversion, or withholding or aggression to try to change somebody, that we can guilt them into changing. This is the, the tools of the limbic system, and it's the tools of much of our foreign policy use the stick these days. It wins battles, but there's always another coup. There's no deep structure change. So when people bring that in, if I'm compassionate, they won't change, then we really need to invite them to look more closely at what really has changed you in your life. Has it been because other people have been judgmental or aggressive? You know, I love the story, Anthony DeMello, he's a wise you know, really wonderful Jesuit priest, he tells, he says, as a young man, I was neurotic for years. He says, I was anxious, depressed, selfish, and my friends kept telling me I needed to change. And then one day, his best friend said, okay, don't change. I, I love you just as you are. And he said, I softened, I relaxed, I came alive, and suddenly I changed. <laughs> And I think that's great because very much as many of you know, Carl Rogers said something similar that it wasn't until I accepted myself just as I was that I was free to change. Compassion is the necessary ingredient of all true transformation. Uh, you can compassionately encourage and support waking up yourself and others. Non-compassion just creates distance and defensiveness. Okay, next I'm trying, I so many things I want to get through with you, but I'm just putting out some of the, the challenging beliefs. Another one, if I'm compassionate, then isn't it that I'm condoning harm? Isn't that unethical? Aren't I being passive or enabling? So again, um, our frame is mature compassion means mindfulness and active caring and wise so if someone's causing harm, act for sure. But look and see where the action's coming from. Is it coming from limbic kind of reaction of, of anger or hatred? Or is it from a more integrated, uh, sourced in, sourced in um, compassion? Because I think, again, of that story I told you myself on this board, I was trying to protect that woman. I acted from anger. And maybe it was better than not acting at all. But it wasn't until I had gone through that whole process of reconnecting with like a really kind of compassionate place inside me that I was actually able to act, but act in an effective way. The um, Sikh woman, Valerie Carr, who's a social activist, describes this, uh, her, her organization's love revolution. And she describes this as breathe and push. 
Just first breathe with bring full presence to what's going on inside you, and then act. So you breathe, you connect with self-compassion, with compassion for others, and then act from that place. And interestingly to me, compassion is uh, the site of it in the brain is very near the motor cortex. So it has the quality of activism uh, to it. And that's what empowers and heals. Okay, next, the next challenging belief. What if someone's not worthy of or deserving my compassion? And again, the, the wisdom of mature compassion is that it's all-inclusive. It's not a reward for deserving behavior. Rather, it's a response because we know we're interconnected and that everyone is vulnerable. Okay, I'm going to move on to the barriers that come from uh, socially conditioned perceptions of difference because it feels so important. There's research recently that shows that the more difference we perceive in someone, the less we can access compassion. It's completely intuitive. We'd all know it, but that's what's there. And one of the most universal places where we lack compassion due to difference is with non-human animals, with other species. Rather than saying that bird has my wings, there's really this sense of we are different from other animals. And one of the questions that uh, came in from you read like this, why, when we talk about cultivating compassion and empathy for others, do we not talk about other species, all our brothers and sisters suffering from animal farming? When I, I read that, I thought about uh, an experience I had 20 years ago. I was teaching a, a, weekend sp a week-long spring retreat at a beautiful center in the Shenandoah in the Blue Ridge. And in the early mornings, when we were waking up and during our early morning meditation, you could hear the sounds of mother cows lowing. They were grieving for their babes. And you might know that in the meat and dairy industry, they're continually pregnating cows and then removing the cows and then impregnating them again. And like all mammals, there's a really deep mother-child attachment between cow and calf. And, you know, and all the research shows the emotional suffering, you know, these heart-rendering bellows, they really, I mean, they just broke me up. And I remember the first time, um, you know, it was the first time that I, and I was a mother, that I actually went, wow, this is excruciating for these beings to experience, like really opening to their torment. And during the retreat, and I wasn't the only one, um, there were many of us listening to these sounds that your body knew were sounds of a really, you know, that torture of separation. And so as a group, we did a lot of metta for the moms and the babes. Well, over this last couple of decades, there's much more awareness of uh, the billions of animals that, that are really tortured daily and how they live and how they die as part of industrial farming. And I've been reading about like that since the advent of the agricultural age, that was 12,000 years ago, it's been our human conditioning to feel separate from other animals and to disregard the suffering we cause them. I mean, you have to be cut off and not really attending to it um, really not sensing these are sentient and real beings um, to be able to cause the harm. And of course, the agricultural age also extended to enslaving other humans and torturing other humans and considering this is where hierarchy really locked in. Lower, some beings are lower and they don't have subjective feelings like me. So again, and this is our last portion of of this uh, you know, session, we go to Rumi who says, find the barriers, and, and, but don't guilt yourself or blame yourself. Find the barriers to compassion and embrace them, bring kindness, but pay attention. Mm -hmm. 
And so uh, one of the questions that uh, one of you sent, which is really beautiful, but how do we deepen our attention here, uh, was this one. I would like you to address how you can cultivate compassion and empathy for someone who is not like you, but of course, who is like you indeed. For example, if you're rich and the person is poor, if you're white, as most of the folks in MMTCPR, how do you understand the co part of compassion, of what it is to live and breathe and walk around carrying whatever burdens we have never known in a black body? If you're a man, what's it like to be compassionate, not just empathy, but the desire to help, not just be the silent witness to women and women's bodies objectification? If you're able-bodied, then what's it like to be disabled? If you're straight hetero, what's it like to be homo or trans? It's the old adage of walking a mile in someone else's shoes. Short of virtual reality technology, how do we do this? Studies have shown that when white people were offered any sum of money to be black, they chose whiteness over being black instead of taking the money. That speaks volumes. I wanted to share that because I feel like there's so much teaching in the question. And again, it points to how we rate those who are different as having less than human qualities. Uh, we feel that they are not subjective, sentient beings. So how do we wake up from the unseen bias, from perceiving hierarchical difference? short of virtual reality technology. And I think that the in teaching that we basically have to keep inviting ourselves and each other, our students, to deepen attention to wherever there's unreal others. In other words, to purposely deepen our attention to those who seem different. And I think there's an interesting question is what motivates us to do that? And I can say in my own life that the more I wake up, the more it becomes really clear that I can't be awake and free if I am living with some notion of being superior to our special, our more important, our more real than any other being. So we begin to investigate that, that sense of wanting to be really awake um, has us investigated so we can see what like Longfellow describes as that secret suffering. And we start asking as Ruby Sales asks us to ask, pose that question, where does it hurt? Now sometimes the suffering of, of others that, that traditionally are different from us becomes so evident that something in us cracks open. I was thinking of, you know, the killing of Antoine Rose. He was 17 years old in Pittsburgh. And I was reading his poem that he wrote uh, a couple of years before he died. So here he is. He's, he was killed at 17. And this poem that he read, wrote in, in 2016 was read by his friends at his funeral. So I'll read it to you. He wrote, I see mothers bury their sons. I want my mom to never feel that pain. I try my best to make my dream true. I hope that it does. I am confused and afraid. This boy was a, a real thinking, feeling, hurting person. He had no weapon. He was shot in the streets. He belonged to all of us. Makes me think of that Memorial Center in Rwanda, that plaque that said, if you knew me and you really knew yourself, you would not have killed me. So we have to let it matter to us and deepen attention. And, it, and, I, and I wonder for you in your own life, what's motivated you to shine a light on unseen bias? And if you're white, to really investigate white privilege. What's motivated you? I want to share a um, story 
with you as part of closing, and then we're going to do a, a brief meditation. Um, I got an email from a European woman who spent many years working in dissension centers in the Netherlands uh, with those they call legal foreigners. And uh, one of the things they live with is the pain of not knowing when they're going to be released. Amnesty International calls this a, mod a modern form of torture. So this woman, uh, clearly mature compassion, very respectful uh, towards those she was working with. And as a result, they told her their stories. And I want to share one story, and I'll read it, uh, that she described. This one uh, young prisoner uh, from faraway country, uh, it he told her that it was his mother's birthday last week. And he had no idea where his mom was or, and wasn't even sure if she was alive. And uh, this woman congratulated him and asked him if he had done anything to mark the day. And uh, like everyone else, he had no idea when he'd get out and uh, didn't know if he'd ever be able to uh, be with her again. And um, so here's what he shared with her. He said, yes, I did. I used my phone card to dial random numbers and kept dialing until a woman answered the phone. Then I explained to the woman at the other end of the line that I was an illegal in illegal foreigner's detention, and I didn't know how much longer they'd keep me here, that it was my mom's birthday and that I missed her so much. I just wanted to tell some woman, any woman, happy birthday for my mother and that I love her. I wanted to tell some woman, any woman, happy birthday for my mother and that I love her. In this reflection together, um, I've shared a few mother-child um, stories. I, Antoine Rose, this prisoner and his mother, and the calves and their children, I, on purpose in a way, because that's the most easy to, relatable, to relate to um, severing of belonging. So many of us uh, kind of felt that searing in our hearts when we heard about the separation of parents and children uh, at the borders in the United States. That's one version, but really our, our path of awakening compassion is to see all the different ways that, um, that we have that shared vulnerability, that there's nobody in this world, no being in this world that if we don't wake up, if we wake up and really look closely, we can't see that bird has my wings, that there's that longing to belong, to feel loved, to feel understood, to really be held in this life. So we'll close together uh, doing a meditation on Unreal Other. And I invite you, as we've been doing uh, tonight, to to take again some moments just to pause. In whatever way most works for you, just to bring yourself right here into the moment. Relaxed, awake. You might let go of any habitual tension that's collected in your body. Just let your body and mind settle. Bring to mind, if you will, a person of difference. And this is the person that you can sense is different from you, that you probably are not as awake. There may be some unseen bias. Not someone who triggers you, but just who you might sense is unreal to you. Maybe somebody, if you're in a helping profession, somebody you're in a helping relationship with, and maybe somebody you don't know but know of. 
a person of difference or a being of difference. I shift my language because some of you may choose to do to bring to mind a farm animal that's being tortured. That you perhaps you uh, want to sense what's it like to wake up compassion there. And before continuing, sense your intention, the intention to really sense that bird has my wings, to sense our interconnectedness, to have your heart be fully inclusive with compassion. And then let yourself bring to mind more closely this person or being of difference. You might notice any of the barriers that are obvious. Maybe there are subtle judgments that you're aware of. Maybe you sense that they and their identified group are in some way not as intelligent or ethical or attractive or important or loving or spiritual or capable as yourself. Maybe there's a habit of in some way blaming the group identity this being belongs to for in some way being bad or wrong or causing harm. Let your inquiry deepen, really trying to find out what is it like being you? What is it like being you? What are your hopes and longings? It's individual, or you might sense it in a more uh, societal, collective way. What are your fears, your hurts? Again, individually or collectively? Really asking, where does it hurt? You might ask, what do you need? What does this being most need? From you, from others, from the society? To sense your heart responding actively with prayer, with energy, with care. You can even imagine reaching out in, the, in a more physically active way, proactive way, if there's a way to be helpful. But in a deep sense, offering love, offering respect, offering understanding offering company. widening the field to include all those 
who in some way are left out, who some way are marginalized, oppressed, relegated in some way to as inferior sensing how all beings belong in our heart. And as you are meditating, you might widen the field to sense all of us collectively in this heart space. Again, sharing the same intention in prayer that all beings be free from suffering. That all beings awaken their wise and caring hearts. That we realize the compassion, the awake, radiant, beautiful space of compassion that can hold our world and all beings. that all beings be peaceful, that all beings be free.